0: We are a tangible, visible church, tangible, visible outpost of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And it is in that context that we need to think about what it means to follow Jesus. What is a disciple? Disciple is someone who follows Jesus, invites others to follow Jesus, and then as we've been talking about, someone who follows Jesus in community, and we've been reflecting on what it means to follow Jesus in community and why that's important and it's in that context that what we talked about two weeks ago and what we'll talk about today makes sense. Sermon on the Mount. Many of us have heard of that Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5, chapters 5 to 7. What is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus taught or preached about what this corporate life of kingdom people ought to look like. And there's a ton of teaching in there about various things, but central the Sermon on the Mount is how kingdom people go about doing relationships. How kingdom people live radically different lives, radically different value system, because we follow a different king, and how we go about relationships. And in particular, how people go about doing two things that are somewhat foreign to the world around us, and that is repentance, that is when we have done something wrong, and forgiveness, and that is when we've been wronged by someone, Right? And again, we began this conversation two weeks ago. And so I don't want to spend a ton of time doing review because I do that enough. So I'd encourage those of you that didn't listen to the first part two weeks ago to listen to that sermon so that you can make sense of what I'm about to talk to today. So I want to briefly just make uh, some, some uh, review comments as we uh, uh, move forward here. Uh, The text that we briefly looked at two weeks ago uh, that began and launched this was Matthew 5, verse 23, where Jesus says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, because of something that you've done, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And again, we briefly talked about this principle of repentance. That is, if you know that you've done something wrong against a brother or sister, go and repent. Go and ask them for forgiveness. If you've done something wrong, it's good for our soul to address it. Guilt, unacknowledged guilt. If you allow it to fester and and, and, and just... Allow lot of time to pass. It eats away at our soul. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's good for our soul, not just to confess it to the people that we've wronged, but even for our own soul to, to, to bring it out in the open and to ask for forgiveness. And again, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. What is repentance? Well, repentance is taking full responsibility for what you've done. Repentance is asking for forgiveness without excuses. It's not a non-apology apology, right? And it's also offering to make changes. Genuine repentance is not just saying that I will do such and such, but it's genuinely making changes to our lives. Now, I just want to pause for a moment because we've been talking about repentance and forgiveness in the context of individual re, uh, relationships. But, but church, just, just, just for a moment this morning, I wanted to expand a little bit and talk about corporate repentance as related to issues of injustice, specifically racial injustice in our country. See, I, I believe that for there to be true healing, In our country, in our our society, there needs to be corporate repentance for the sin of racial injustice. The problem, of course, is that we live in a country where someone talks about corporate repentance and it just sounds so foreign and frankly, so offensive to people, right? I mean, the immediate response when we talk about corporate repentance is people going, well, I didn't do it and uh, I wasn't a part of it. It happened hundreds of years ago. And I'm not responsible. There there's is this, there's this sort of resistance, and, and frankly, even people take an offense at this concept of corporate repentance, communal repentance for sins of the past. The thing is, when you look in Scripture, God regularly holds the community responsible for the actions of individuals. And we see examples actually throughout Scripture, you guys, of godly people corporately repenting for sins of the past of their ancestors. Daniel is one of them. Daniel chapter 9, verse 5, he says, but we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and have scorned your commands. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets who spoke to our kings and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. See, corporate repentance church is not just about repenting for our own personal failings. In the context of systemic injustice, corporate repentance is about is expressing sorrow. It's about expressing regret, expressing grief for the historic as well as contemporary mistreatment of people of color and acknowledging that some people have benefited from the sin of racism, although they themselves may not be racist. See, I wonder what would happen if more people in our country, instead of saying, you know, I wasn't there and I didn't do those things. Maybe what would happen if people said racism was wrong. Racism was evil. And I'm sorry that an entire system built around elevating and benefiting certain people has caused such harm and destruction to your community. I wonder what would happen if more of us said, I am grieved that people like me continue to benefit from this system and I seek to understand more so that I can end the pain of the sin of racism. Church, what would happen if more people repented for being passive, for not caring enough, for standing on the sidelines, and without any ifs or ands or buts, offered to make sincere changes to themselves and to the society at large, what would happen to our country? Maybe what would happen is Second Chronicles chapter seven verse fourteen, where God says, "If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will heal their land and forgive them of their sins." Corporate repentance. Repentance. As I mentioned, the easier part of relationship repair. The more challenging is when we've been hurt, when you've been hurt, and I've been hurt. And Jesus gives the most comprehensive treatment on this topic of what forgiveness looks like in what's come to be known as the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now, Again, this is a brief review, okay? Before we launch into the parable and the implications of what forgiveness looks like, remember I talked a couple weeks ago about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not condoning. Forgiving is not condoning. I get people who get stuck. I see people get stuck because they think that when you forgive someone, it's like I'm condoning or saying what they did was okay. No, they're two completely different things. Forgiving someone to set them free from the deaths of your heart, to to, to resolve to live free from bitterness and anger and hatred by forgiving someone is an entirely different thing from saying, I'm condoning what you did and I'm saying what you did was okay. Two totally different things. Forgiving someone is also not forgetting what happened. You know, people who... Wrongists will sometimes say things like, well, you just need to forgive and forget. The problem is that forgiving that person doesn't erase the memory of what happened. See, if we were able to forgive and forget, that would be great. And by the way, a lot of people say things like, well, God forgets our sins. No, he doesn't forget. The Bible says he remembers our sins no more. And what that means is God doesn't hold our sins against us. He doesn't hold our sins against us. See, in some cases, it could be unwise, unsafe to do, to just forget. You know, I've seen this in abusive relationships. Listen, if he's done this 11 times in a row, forgiving him is a different thing than not letting him do it again. Forgiving someone could go along with setting up really strong boundaries. Forgiving someone could go along with, I can't be in the same room with you. Forgiving someone could go along with letting justice and consequences for their actions eventually take its course. Forgiving is not forgetting. Forgiveness also is not reconciliation. Again, people confuse the two. Forgiving the person does not mean that everything goes back to the way things were before. People will sometimes say, you're supposed to forgive and we're supposed to get back to the way things were. No, forgiving someone doesn't necessarily mean that there will be reconciliation. Forgiving someone might mean that you don't go back together again. Forgiving someone also doesn't mean you go into business again together. Forgiving someone is not the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiving is, however, personal. You can't forgive a nameless person faceless institution you know people who've been hurt by the church sometimes get stuck because they they think that forgiving uh, the church means well I just I'm just going to forgive this faceless name no when people have been hurt by the church what they mean is they've been hurt by someone in the church maybe it was a pastor maybe it was a church leader or a small group member In order to forgive and move on, we can't just forgive a nameless institution. You need to identify who was it. Because that's where the issue is. And forgiveness also is a process. You know, wrongs unto us have shaped us. Many of us, who we are today, is a response to the wounds that have been inflicted upon us. It's shaped us in so many ways. And man, I just want to say and learning to forgive someone might be a week, months, year-long process. And that's okay. That's okay, because forgiving someone is a long process. And if, if somehow you heard the church say, you're a bad Christian, if you can't forgive someone, and you just need to forgive and move on, I'm sorry if the church has sent the wrong message to you, that somehow forgiveness is easy or you know, shamed you, or tried to guilt you into forgiveness. It doesn't work that way, church family. It's a process. And as I joked a couple weeks ago, if you no longer daydream of killing that person, that's progress. And maybe we need to celebrate that. So what is forgiveness and how do we do it? The parable, Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> Let me read it and then we'll look out some of the implications Matthew 18 verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Remember, Peter misunderstands the nature of forgiveness. Peter thinks that forgiveness is for the benefit of the person who hurt us, who wronged us. It's not. It's not. Forgiveness is for us. Forgiveness might do some good for the person whose wronged us, but forgiveness ultimately is about what it does to us and the implications that it has for us. And we'll see that in a little bit. Verse 22, Jesus answered him, though I tell you, Peter, not seven times, but 77 times, which literally means without limits. Forgive without limits. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began to settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. The parable, remember I talked to us a couple of weeks ago, centers around not a large debt, but around an unpayable debt. 10,000 talents is billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. And the servant is not a cook or someone who does chores, most likely a vassal king or regional governor entrusted by the king to care for the king's uh, uh, empire in that region. And so what this governor or vassal king, this servant did is through mismanagement or corruption has put the emperor or the king's empire at risk. It's an enormous offense. Verse 25, Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Verse 27, the service master, now check this out, took pity on him. Underline that, highlight that, bold that. We're going to come around to that again and again. He took pity on him and cancel the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. The exact same thing that this servant said to the king. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. The king says to this servant, I did away with the record-keeping way, the bookkeeping way of dealing with you. Verse 33, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? The king is saying, I did away with the record-keeping way of treating you. And yet, the way you dealt with your friend was through record keeping. And Paul comes around and says in 1 Corinthians 13:5, essence of love is what? Love is. Love keeps no record. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Church, about who are you saying? You did that to me. And I'm going to keep a record of that and hold it against you. About who are you saying as you listen to this today? Remember when you did that? Remember when you made that promise and you broke it? Remember when you said that to me? Remember when you didn't come through? You remember? Remember how you did that? Well, I, I, I'm keeping a record of that, and I'm holding that against you. But who are you saying that about? A, a parent, spouse, a friend, coworker, boss? See, I'm like you. Um, I'm naturally bent towards record keeping. And I thought about why it is that we, most of us, struggle with record keeping. Is because, first, record keeping is power, right? And there's, there's power in having to, you know, hold something over someone's head. Because when, when, when those moments come, when we want our own way, we pull out the record of what they did. Wrongs and against us. is sort of the relational trump card. And, and who doesn't like having that kind of power over people? Well, record keeping also is identity. You see, holding on to someone's sin or weakness or failure deep down inside makes us feel superior to them. It allows us to believe that we're more righteous. And so we fall into this pattern of getting our sense of self, not by comfort and call of the gospel, but by. Comparing ourselves to somebody else. Record-keeping also entitlement. You owe me. After all that I've had to endure in this relationship with you, don't I deserve? Don't I deserve? Record-keeping also puts us in God's position. It's not our job to make sure that Appropriate amount of guilt or pain for what they've done is inflicted. We're not God, but it's very tempting to ascend to God's throne, isn't it? To make ourselves judge and jury? Record-keeping also makes us blind. We become so focused on the failures of other people that we become blind to ours. We forget how often we've failed, how much sin mars everything we do, and how we desperately need grace that we're given daily by God. See, record-keeping is almost natural for us and holds so much power. About who are you saying, come on, church, about who are you saying, I have a record of what you did, and I'll hold that against you. Verse 34, then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And this, Jesus ends by saying, is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. The unforgiving servant is thrown into prison. A prison of his own choosing because of his unwillingness to forgive. His servant enters into a jailhouse of his own choosing because of his own uh, unwillingness to forgive. See, to not forgive someone, spiritually, is to choose a life of prison. Prison to anger to hatred, to bitterness, to resentment. And the human heart, your heart, my heart, was not created to be a container for toxic emotions, you guys, like hate and anger and bitterness. And I tell you what I've observed about anger as a pastor having interacted with people. I tell you something about anger. Uh, We hide it. We, we hide anger. We minimize anger. We, we never want to admit just how angry we are. Uh, I've, 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 I've been a pastor and people readily admit, you know, anxiety, readily admit uh, worry. And people actually have no problems readily admitting. their struggle with lust even. But it's interesting how people um, don't want to admit how angry they are. And by the way, Exhibit A, Exhibit A. Uh, people that know me the best, uh, when they remind me that I have anger issues, man, it's incredible how defensive I get, and I'm like, no, I'm a lot of things, but I, I just, I just have this, I just struggle admitting how angry I am. Maybe you could relate. So you know what it does? Anger works in a sort of a subterranean way. In other words, it's down there, it's affecting you, but but you don't realize it. Do do you know that some of you guys actually would say to me, you know? Pastor Peter, uh, I, I am really disappointed at my parents and I'm even angry at them. But you know, uh, that doesn't affect at all how I look at authority figures. Oh, it doesn't affect at all how it affects, you know, who I trust and who I don't in relationships. It's amazing how much we minimize and we hide how angry we are. And so it goes unresolved. And do you know what we do with unresolved anger? Unresolved bitterness and resentment? Here's what we do. Sometimes we can't get back at the people, so we take it out on someone else and others pay. We make whoever is standing by pay, so kids experience dad's anger or mom's anger. In irregular times, at irregular things, our anger is sort of, you know, our response is sort of disproportionate to the actual thing at hand. How many of us blow our fuse in traffic? Let's be honest. It's not about the traffic. Listen, if you live in Chicago, there's only two seasons, okay? It's winter and construction. Two seasons Chicago, winter and construction. It's not about the seasons. It's not about the traffic. It's about something else. And the wound, if not dealt with, becomes internalized. I've actually, I've literally had people say to me, Pastor Peter, I guess this thing that happened to me must be some sort of a statement about my worth and my value. And so this thing that was done to me, maybe I really am like that. Maybe I am beyond hope. Maybe I'm beyond love. Maybe I'm beyond redemption. It gets internalized. And then there are some people who do self-destructive things as a response to unresolved anger. It's almost like this, this thing in us that says, well, I'll show them, this is, this is how I'll pay them back for what they did to me. I'll hurt myself. It's what anger does when it goes unresolved. It's like your heavenly father, my heavenly father, knows that to not forgive, to hold on to anger and hurt and bitterness is to press that self-destruct button again and again and again. Forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior. Forgiveness prevents their behavior from destroying your heart. Forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior. Forgiveness prevents their behavior from destroying your heart. So, how do we forgive? How do we forgive this this huge, massive thing that you and I struggle doing? First and foremost, you and I have to understand what forgiveness is. And forgiveness is giving up the right to see repayment. Forgiveness is giving up the right to see repayment. Do Do you think about why we say things like, you owe me an apology? Why do we say that? You owe me an apology. Here's why. See, when someone wrongs you, someone takes credit for your ideas or someone embarrasses you or slashes you emotionally or betrays you, there's a real sense of loss. There's a real sense of loss, like something was taken from us. Maybe it was, maybe it was a promotion or maybe it was a childhood. Maybe it was a reputation there's a real sense of loss when we're wrong. There's a there's sense in which the person is a debtor to you, that they owe you. And the most common way that we, fee- we deal with this feeling of owed is we pay them back. That's how we deal with it. We, we pay them back directly and indirectly. How do we pay them back directly? Well, you know and I know. They hurt your reputation. I'm going to hurt your reputation. You slash me emotionally. I'm gonna slash you emotionally. You act cold towards me. I'm gonna act cold towards you. We pay them back. Or some of us, we pay them back indirectly. Say, hey, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the high moral ground. I'm not, I'm not gonna make you pay. I'm not gonna make you pay. But you know what we do? We root for their misery. We root for their misery. We hope that they get fired or they get dumped or they experience pain and suffering. And when they experience something bad, there's a part of us that says, yes. Directly, indirectly, if the person suffers enough, you start to feel like the person is paid. The thing is, if you make them pay, it puts you in jail. It imprisons you. It twists you and me. Self pity, anger, resentment. And sure, sure, we might feel better to see them hurt and upset and crying, losing their jobs, but when we make the other person pay, we become like the evil that was unto us. The evil passes into you and me. She so says, well, well, what's the alternative then, Peter? This is why it's so hard, forgiveness. The alternative is we pay. What, am I, what do I mean? See, in the, in the parable, when the king paid down the debt, it didn't just go into thin air. It didn't... It didn't disappear, he had to absorb it. That that will not just go away by ignoring it. Someone has to pay. Forgiveness is us saying, I will pay down to that. And I say, what does that look like, Peter? Here's an illustration of a young man. He says, once upon a time, I was engaged to a young lady who changed her mind. I forgave her, but it took me a whole year, and I had to forgive her in small sums over the whole 12 months. I paid these sums whenever I spoke to her and kept myself from rehashing the past. I paid them whenever I saw her with another man, and I refused self-pity and rehearsal inside for what she's done to me. I paid them whenever I praised her to others when really what I wanted to do was slice away at her reputation. Those were my payments. But I never knew her payments. But I know she made them. I could tell. Forgiveness is not only a refusal to hate someone, but it is choosing to love and will the good of the offender and it is utterly painful but the cross the nails and the pain are the currency of forgiveness but it is as the ultimate cross and nails were it leads to healing and more to resurrection see forgiveness hurts If it doesn't hurt, I don't think we're doing it right. It hurts because it's costly to forgive. You and I are making the payments. The thing is, if you forgive, what eventually happens is that slowly, because you're not putting fuel into the fire of your anger, the anger will eventually subside. It may take weeks. It may take months. Sometimes it takes years. Depends on the size of the wrong but it goes away. And there's freedom. What does it look like in practice? How do we do this in practice? First, we have to identify. I have to identify what it is that's been taken. And this is hard, but it's necessary. See, we hurt generally, and we try to forgive generally, but forgiveness requires that we identify what it is that's been taken. What do I think she owes me? What do I think he owes me? What is it that she needs to give back to me? You have to say, I have to be able to say with rigorous honesty, the merits that I hope for and long for was taken from me. The childhood that I wish I had was taken from me. The reputation that I so value and cherish was taken from me, the promotion. We have to identify specifically what it is that's been taken. Secondly, we have to identify with the offender. Now this is really, really hard. Verse 27, when it says, the king took pity, that's not feeling sorry for them. It's literally having your heart go out to them. That is, you're identifying with them. You're deliberately doing the internal work of reminding yourself how much we actually have in common with them. And that's the last thing you and I want to do. Because you and I want to accentuate the differences between us and the person who's wronged us. But what we have to do if we want, what we have to do if we want to forgive according to the sex, if we are ever going to avoid the jailhouse of anger and bitterness, is we have to identify as much as we can with the person and say, I am really the same. Miroslav Volf who is for me been probably the most insightful person on forgiveness wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. All of you should read it. It's a must reading. Here's a quote that I've quoted over the years that is essential to forgiveness. He says, "Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners." Here's what he's saying. He says, you can't exclude yourself from the community of sinners if you want to forgive. The only way that we can hold on to grudges and stay angry is by telling ourselves, I would never do that. I would never do that because I am nothing like you. Did you ever notice that when someone wrongs us, but we actually do the same thing or we struggle with that same thing, it's really hard to stay angry and not forgive them? See, when you stay angry at somebody, it's because the subtext Volf is saying is, we are saying to ourselves, I would never do that. But forgiveness is impossible. If you and I refuse to admit, here's the thing, we may not do the exact same thing that they did. But the fact that we may do things like that, or the fact that you and I are capable of doing things like that You and I could only forgive if we do the internal work of seeing how much we have in common and identifying with them. The other thing he says is we also can't exclude them from the community of humans. That is, you can't dehumanize them. I can't dehumanize them. See, the only way that we stay angry at someone is to dehumanize them by creating one-dimensional Distorted views of them. Someone has lied to you. Well, why did they lie to you? You know what we say? We say things like, they're just a liar. That's all they are. She's just a liar. We think of them completely in terms of that lie. We've reduced them to the lies. But when people ask us, well, do you ever lie? We don't say, well, I'm just a liar. That's why I lie. But when we have a difficult time forgiving someone. It's because, in some ways, there's some total of what they did. So they're just that person that divorced me. They're just the person that betrayed me. They're just the person who left me. They're just. And when they become less human, something happens to our own humanity. We become less human, less compassionate. See, we don't want others to see us simply for our past mistakes and past sins. I don't want to be known simply for what I've done in the past. But we can't expect then from others what we are not willing to do for ourselves. The last thing, if we want to forgive, is we have to choose to forgive. What do I mean? Forgiveness, church, is not a feeling. See, many people say, oh, I have to start feeling less angry. I have to start feeling like I want to forgive. But if we wait till like, we feel like it, we will wait forever. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Scripture says forgiveness is an act of the will. Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, If you're standing and you're praying, and if you have something in your heart, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. It's obviously an act of the will, or Jesus wouldn't have said, if you're standing and you have something to forgive, then forgive them. See, the principle is we grant forgiveness first before we feel it. If you choose to forgive, Jesus says, the anger will eventually subside. And it cuts off the oxygen to self-pity and self-righteousness. We choose as an act of the will, before we feel it, to forgive. Say, Peter, I've heard your teaching, but I don't want to. I don't want to do it. I don't want to forgive. Friend, then what's the alternative? When evil has been done to you and you don't forgive, then the evil wins. It comes into you and me and it hardens us and it makes us less trusting and more bitter and more resentful. But Peter, it's so hard. It's so hard to forgive. It is. Actually, it's harder than it's just hard. It's more difficult because it feels like death. It feels like death to forgive somebody but church it's a death that leads to a resurrection forgiving someone will feel like death it's a form of suffering it's agony but it's a death that leads to a resurrection just like it did for Jesus You and I can choose. It's our choice to live a lifelong death from bitterness and anger and resentment because we refuse to forgive. Or we could choose and lean into the death that Jesus calls us to, which as he did for him, would lead to a resurrection. See, we began the sermon series, Follow Me, a long time ago by saying, Jesus' essential call was carry the cross and follow me. Foundational to our call is death to ourselves. But as He promised, it's a death that leads to, that transforms into resurrection. We follow Him in the Christ pattern. The Christ pattern is death before resurrection, crucifixion before resurrection, forgiveness is a death that we willingly choose to enter into so that we could be resurrected. You ever notice people, people who choose, don't just, they don't just say they believe, but they choose to enter into the Christ pattern of death and resurrection. They have suffered, they have experienced agony, but they come out on the other side, transformed and never the same. And where do you get the power to do this? We get the power to do this in the gospel. The gospel. The gospel has to be a bright living reality. You and I, if we're going to do this, have to behold the compassion of the king. The king took pity on the servant. In other places, took pity, literally, is translated in the New Testament. He had compassion on them. In other words, took pity throughout the New Testament, the Gospel is Jesus' badge. More than any other words, the thing that describes Jesus is he took pity. He had compassion on them. It's not feeling sorry for it. It's identifying with. You see, when I said earlier that you have to identify with the wrongdoer, some of you scoffed. You said, how can anybody do that? At the center of the gospel is that in the incarnation, Jesus identified with us by taking on flesh and bone and becoming like us. And in the crucifixion, fiction, Jesus identified with us. No, He did more than identify with us. He became us. He became us. Second Corinthians, God took him who had no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. How is that for identifying with the wrongdoer? Jesus identified with, but oh, he did more than identify with. He paid the debt. See, in the Gospels, when Jesus crucified, we read in the English Bible, it is finished. The Greek word tetelestai, tetelestai literally is not it is finished, tetelestai literally is it is paid. It's paid. The king didn't make you pay. The king absorbed the debt. The king paid the debt, not just at the risk of his kingdom, but at the cost of his kingdom, at the cost of his life. The essence of the gospel says that God did away with the record-keeping. God did away with the record-keeping. God Did away with the record keeping. The gospel of Jesus' insistence that God doesn't love you for all the good things you do and he doesn't withhold love from you because of the bad things you do. There's no more treating you based on your record. There's cheating you based on Christ's record. There's no more cheating you on your past, but Christ's past. God doesn't deal with you and me in light of what we've done, but in light of what Christ has done. The gospel is death to record keeping. And until you and I see the infinite debt that was paid on our behalf, we will not be able to pay down finite debt that people owe us. If a perfect God can forgive imperfect people like us, why do imperfect people have such a hard time forgiving other imperfect people. The essence of the gospel is he paid down an unpayable debt. The kingdom of God comes with limitless grace in the midst of an evil world, but it also comes with limitless demand. Jesus says, as I have done for you, I need you to do for others. Not because they deserve it, Mercy isn't giving people what they deserve. It's giving people what they don't deserve. But you don't know what they've done. And Jesus says, no, I do. And I know what you've done. And as I've shown you mercy, I need you to show others mercy. The essence of the gospel. In the shadow of the cross, no matter how much we're required to forgive others, it pales in comparison to what God has forgiven to us. You see, God hasn't asked you to die for anybody. He simply says, forgive as I've forgiven you.